Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may draw those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So we introduced the Apostles' Creed during the last session, and today we're going to introduce uh, Holy Scripture. We're turning the page uh, to question number 26. If you have the gray edition of the Catechism, I do not know what page that is. Um, keep in mind that this, uh, this Catechism is going to be very shortly superseded by the new edition, which will not be a radical change, but will be an evolution, and we'll uh, actually sort out some of the issues with the first one, which you'll see as we teach through it that there are some, uh, there are some few glaring errors. There are a few, like, Scripture references that are not right. But the new edition should be coming out in the next few months uh, in an online edition, a PDF, and you can download it if you want to look at it. Um, we might make the transition. It just depends on what it will take to get, uh, I don't know, a hundred copies here in that new edition. Uh, but that will be coming out, published by a major publisher, actually, so that's really good news. Um, so we turn to question 26. Um, remember that uh, the, the Apostles' Creed is authoritative. Why? Well, we, we answer this in question 20. The purpose of the creeds is to declare and safeguard God's truth about himself, ourselves, and creation as God has revealed it in Holy Scripture. The creeds um, hold forth the truth of Scripture, not only about who God is, but about who we are um, and about what creation is. And so uh, we turn immediately to Holy Scripture and the question of what is Holy Scripture. So here it is. What is Holy Scripture? Holy Scripture is God's Word written, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history, and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Holy Scripture is God's Word written. Um, we can first say that God has a Word, yes? Uh, that God is speaking, um, that God has spoken. Um, and that this word is given uh, through the Holy Spirit. Um, not simply uh, to, you know, kind of announce to all humanity through his Holy Spirit what's going on, but to specific people, uh, prophets and apostles. Um, and it is as this revelation of God. Um, there are certain things that you don't know about me. Um, but I could reveal a few facts to you right now about myself. Uh, one is that, uh, I was thinking about this a couple nights ago, on the night before Mount St. Helens blew, I was sleeping at Mount St. Helens State Park. <laughs> and uh, and um, the next day, the whole camp was covered in ash. My parents thought, hey, let's get up this morning and go get breakfast at McDonald's, and I'm glad they did because we'd all be dead if they hadn't. Okay, there's a fact about myself that I just revealed to you. Um, another one is that when I was five years old, I electrocuted myself. It was very uh, terrible. I was a crazy kid. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and uh, I've been to the emergency room by the time I was 10 years old, more than my six kids combined. Um, but... That's another revelation of myself, right? You didn't know that. I don't think any of you knew that before coming here today. But I revealed it to you, right? And now you know it. Uh, God, is, God is a God of revelation. He reveals himself to his people. Um, and he does this uh, through human history. Um, he reveals himself. And, uh, and this word which is revealed is written down. Um, and therefore, and in Anglicanism, this is, one of the, this is one of the things that we really hold dear, is that Scripture is therefore the church's final authority. Now, note what we don't say. Instead of final, we could have said only. We don't say only, we say final. <laughs> and that's one of the particulars of Anglican thought. Um, Anglicanism is not, script, is not, strictly speaking, a, a sola scriptura tradition. So if you're one of those theology nerds and you want to kind of think about this, uh, it's actually that Scripture is the final authority. There are other authorities, um, and, and uh, Scripture is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Um, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is what? God-breathed, right? It's inspired, and that's actually the, the, the way that we think about how, the, how Scripture is revealed to the, to the prophets and apostles through the Holy Spirit. Um, anyone here uh, use pneumatic tools ever? Okay. Not a lot of mechanics among us. Uh, how, how about been to the dentist lately? <laughs> okay, that little drill is powered by air. 
And it's powerful, right? Because that air pushes through, and that is, that's, that's in a word what, what the power of Scripture is like. It's, it's God-breathed. It's, it's, a, it's a pneumatic, a pneumatically powered revelation. Um, and so that's, that's what the, the authors speak. Keep in mind also that, um, think about how human life functions in Scripture. How is, how is this uh, heap of dust turned into a living being? Yeah. God forms it, and then he breathes life into it. And it, we read that Adam became what? A living being. Um, so the same breath which is in creation is actually in Scripture, uh, revealing God within Scripture. Um, and this is actually uh, a really important thing, which gets to another point, but that is that, um, that we really do come to know the truth about creation through Scripture. Now, you're going you're gonna to probably anticipate a lot of the debates. Well, so is creation, you know, is it all created in six days or not? We're not going to get into that. If you want to talk about that off-site, we can talk about that off-site. Um, but I do want to say for now that we learn the truth about creation. Um, and it may be more mysterious than you think at first glance. All right, what books are contained in Holy Scripture? The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament form the whole of Holy Scripture, which is also called the Bible and canon. Um, we hold that all the canonical books, and by canon we simply mean the list, right? Um, a list was formed for the Old Testament uh, in, the, in the last centuries uh, before Christ, um, and, and a list began to be formed in the centuries following uh, uh, the advent of, of, of um, well, following uh, the early church. Um, and we have complete lists in the New Testament that date back to the middle of the fourth century, um, and some of them go even earlier. Um, we can talk a lot about how that canon's formed, but it's enough to say that this canon's been in place and is authoritative, has been authoritative for a long, long time. And in fact, we were talking about this with Brazos fellows lately, that, that the development of the New Testament canon almost runs exactly parallel to the creeds being articulated. It's right at the same time. So these, these run uh, concurrently. What is the Old Testament? The Old Testament contains the record of God's creation of all things, mankind's original disobedience, God's calling of Israel to be his people, God's law, God's wisdom, God's saving deeds, and the teaching of God's prophets. The Old Testament points to Christ, revealing God's intention to redeem and reconcile the world through Christ. That last sentence is of utmost importance. The Old Testament points to Christ. Um, as Anglicans, and indeed as all Catholic Christians do, we hold that the Old Testament is not an abstraction from Christ. Um, we don't simply say, oh, well, there was one God of the Old Testament and another of the New. Uh, God sort of changes or morphs into this better being. No, it's the same God of both Testaments. Um, that's really important. Uh, there's an ancient heresy called Marcionism where uh, the idea is, oh, God just sort of gets replaced, and the God who's revealed to us in Christ is different from the God of the Old Testament. Uh, that's, that's just straight-up heresy. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, we'll talk about that. Hang on, because we'll get there. Uh, there is a question um, getting, getting close here. Question 37, we'll deal with that. So just keep it in your back pocket, and we'll, we'll get to it. Um, and I'll, I'll explain fully. Um, but, but this is to say that the Old Testament uh, points to Christ. There's more about this in there. Uh, but, but a close reading of the Old Testament will reveal very, quick, very quickly that Christ is actually active in the Old Testament. Um, and this is a wonderful thing uh, to discover. And uh, if, you, if you read the ancient fathers, it's one of the things that they're very excited about. It's only been in the last century and a half or so that, that, that doubt has been shed on this in a deeper way, which is uh, that uh, certain forms of higher criticism have said, well, there's no way for people to anticipate Christ who are writing the Old Testament. Well, I mean, read it, right? The, the New Testament itself says that this has been pointed to by the Old Testament. Um, so this is, uh, this is one of the delights, actually, of reading Scripture. One of the things you'll also find, and I'll say more about this in future questions, but is that um, very often on a Sunday morning, the lectionary is set up to have the Old Testament reading relate directly to the gospel or relate directly to the epistle. 
And so you'll see these, these beautiful parallels start to be lined up. This is, this is an act of, of artistry in uh, forming these, uh, these lectionaries, but it's a great, great joy to see that. The Old Testament simply contains the record, right? What does it mean to, to have a record? Yeah, it's just a history, right? Um, it's, it's, a simple, it's a simple phrase, which means that it's recording history um, of God's creation of all things, mankind's original disobedience. You get, you get the themes, right? We have this creation, fall, um, God's calling of Israel uh, to be His people. Uh, Anglicans have always held that, that, um, that, uh, that uh, God's, God's people are central in Scripture, this, this idea of Israel being God's chosen vessel for the redemption of mankind, that's held in the New Testament as well. What is the New Testament? The New Testament contains the record of Jesus Christ's birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, the church's early ministry, the teaching of the apostles, and the revelation of Christ's coming eternal kingdom. Um, this is, say, quite simply what we read in the New Testament, right? Which if you read the Gospels, you say, oh, that's, that's the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, which is only contained in uh, one gospel or two gospels and then, and then the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but you have the church's earth, earth, early ministry um, contained in the Acts of the Apostles as well as uh, other places in, in the Pauline corpus, uh, Paul's writings. We have the teaching of the apostles. Um, keep in mind as well what the Acts of the Apostles tell us in chapter 2, that the ancient church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so actually, one of the, one of the criteria for, um, for a book or a letter or whatever it might have been to be included in the New Testament was that it claimed for itself apostolic origin. Um, so there are certain uh, old, old documents, uh, such as the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermas and all kinds of other documents, that didn't wind up in the New Testament canon. And one of the simple reasons is what? They simply don't claim to be apostolic. Um, and yet you read the writings of Paul, and what is, Paul, what is one of Paul's main things he harps on? I'm an apostle, okay? So you, you got to listen, right? I'm an apostle. And, and he says, of course, as one untimely born, I'm an apostle, but I'm still an apostle. Why? Because Jesus, the risen Christ, revealed himself to me directly. Um, so all of the New Testament claims this apostolic origin. Um, I want to say just a little bit about how that New Testament canon is formed. It's important to note. Um, many people have come to me and said, well, why isn't, why isn't the gospel of Thomas included in the New Testament canon? And the best answer is, because it's not. <laughs> but, but I can say why. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of extraneous uh, um, Gnostic writings. Um, and, and the first thing that we can say is, uh, when it comes to textual evidence, um, we have very few of these texts compared to the New Testament. Um, if you're a New Testament scholar type, and I know there might be a few in here, uh, you know that we have piles and piles and piles and piles of New Testament texts. Just, they're piled one upon the other, thousands of these things. And for the Gnostic Gospels, very few. Um, and these things were like pulp fiction in the ancient world, and yet it's the New Testament texts that accumulate. And the reason is that they, became, they are circulated widely. And they're also protected. So you can imagine this. Say you're, uh, you're, you're holding down the fort in the house church in such and such a town, and the uh, Roman centurion in town comes and says, give us your holy books. <laughs> you're like, here, take the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> we don't even read this. And, you know, it's, but, it, but it's, you know, this is, this is generally kind of the speculation about what happened that created this wide difference between the number of texts we have for the New Testament and the number of texts we have for everything else. Um, over time, it becomes the case that what is read in church is what forms the canon. Um, and that remains the case today. And this will actually relate to your question about the Apocrypha going forward is, well, what, what exactly is included in that and how does that work? Okay, how are the Old and New Testaments related to each other? The Old Testament is to be read in the light of Christ, incarnate, crucified, and risen. And the New Testament is to be read in light of God's revelation to Israel. As St. Augustine says, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. I love this quote from St. Augustine. It's actually why it's there is that I love it so much. Um, um, I don't reveal often 
the authors of these various sections, but I, I am the author of the draft of the Holy Scripture section, and I insisted that this be put in there because it's so often the case that people think, oh, there's, there's just this abstraction between the old and the new. When in fact, we see Christ revealed over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Um, Over the past few weeks in the daily office, we've been reading the story of the great rebellion against David by his son Absalom. Do you remember this story? It's a a horrible story, right, about about a wayward son who who, uh, really becomes an aggressor against his own father and uh, throws him out of town, and and David's sent packing from the city. And later, David regains the upper hand, and, uh, and, well, maybe you know the story. Absalom winds up hung up in a tree, and uh, David's general just kills him in the tree. He he runs a spear through him. And, of course, this uh, general comes back to David, and, you know, David says, is it well with young man Absalom? And and the the general... um, replies by saying, well, no, I mean, I killed him. <laughs> and uh, and what, what happens to David? He weeps and laments his rebellious son who's hung on a tree. Do you see the parallel? The, 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 the perfect son of David hangs on a tree for the salvation of the world. Um, uh, but, but he's not rebellious himself, is he? He's rather a stand-in for rebellious humanity. Um, do, you see, do you see how it stacks? Do you see how Christ is revealed? And, and this should happen over and over again as you read the Old Testament. Think about for a moment um, how often in Scripture uh, these, these themes are called out. Um, even ones that, that seem a little odd, right? Um, Paul makes reference to the people of Israel following a supernatural rock, which is not even referenced in the Old Testament. Because <laughs> there, you know, there is a rock, there, there's a rock from which water flows, but they don't follow it around. It's, it's stationary. Um, but, but Paul says that the rock was Christ. Um, because one of the things that happens in the New Testament is the New Testament authors are looking for Christ in the, in the Old. And so Augustine has this wonderful I quote here, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Um, and so we look for the revelation of Christ um, in, in the Old Testament, um, but we look, we look for this in the record of the New Testament, what happens there. Um, there's a great debate as well in, in, the, in the early church about, uh, for instance, the Passover lamb. Does the Passover lamb point us to Christ? The overwhelming opinion is yes, right? <laughs> Look, I mean, none of his bones are broken on the cross. Um, just like the Passover lamb, not one of its bones is to be broken. And even when they go to send people to break his bones so they'll hasten his death, he's already dead, so they don't break his bones. Um, there's lots to be seen there, um, but this, this does point us forward. Um, usually these are referred to as type and anti-type, these, uh, this idea that, um, that the Scriptures are thick with typology. Um, why? Why would this be? It's the same God. It's the same God revealing Himself, but also He, he wants His people to recognize Him in Christ. Remember what Jesus says, you search the Scriptures thinking that by them you'll have life, but who do the Scriptures testify to? This is me. They're about me. Okay. Um, and so this is, this is an essential thing. The Scriptures testify to Christ. What does it mean that Holy Scripture is inspired? Holy Scripture is God-breathed, for the biblical authors wrote under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to record God's Word. Now, we don't hold that, uh, that word for word it's sort of dictated into the, into the ear of the apostles or dictated into the ears of the prophets and then written down word for word. What we hold instead is that they work by, divine, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write what they write. Um, and so um, they're, they're writing, you know, I, I, I have no doubt that, that Paul probably didn't think that what he was writing would become Scripture. <laughs> he, he already had Scripture. What was it? The Old Testament, right? Um, and yet, these letters are not just read once, but they're read continually, and they become this New Testament. Um, and, and the reason is that they're recognized as being what they are, which is inspired. 
Um, and so this inspiration uh, is, is, uh, is how we understand Scripture to be, uh, to be not only um, trustworthy but authoritative as well. What does it mean that the Bible is the Word of God? Because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is rightly called the Word of God written. God is revealed in His mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord, but His works and His will are made known to us through the inspired words of Scripture. God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through the Bible today. Um, we simply say this, that because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we, just, we call it God's Word written um, and are emphatic about this. Um, now, of course, who is the Word of God? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the Word of God. Um, and and the, way we, the way we think about that um, um, in terms of thinking about Christ is this. Um, The begotten Word of God, which is eternally begotten, which is, which is always existed, is born forth continually from the Father. Um, and, uh, and, and quite obviously, right, if that's the case, then are we going to see that? Are we going to hear that? Yes, we're going to hear what that is. Um, and so, so uh, this, you know, St. Augustine once said that… that uh, that the Holy Spirit is essentially this, this, this sigh of love between the Father and the Son. Um, and so, uh, so we, we see, and I think this is really important, we see the triune God active in Scripture, and that's, that's essential to say as well. But we, we see this um, in the Incarnation, um, but we, 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 the, only, well, the only way you and I know about the Incarnation today is what? Yeah, through Scripture, right? We read the account of the Incarnation. Um, God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through the Bible today, um, which is important, right? I mean, I think we can… It's very popular to say, um, well, we're going to talk about what Paul meant in writing to the Philippians. If we can understand what the Philippians were to take away from it or what he wanted the Philippians to take away, then maybe we can understand by extension what he meant for us. Um, I think we ought to say Paul meant it for the Philippians, and he may not have known it, but it was meant for us too. <laughs> and I think we can say it with the same sense, right? Um, you know, we read Jesus speaking to the disciples, um, and we can say Jesus meant these words for the disciples, but he also meant them for us too. <laughs> and, and that's very important. I think we can often build this distance, right? We can say, well, was it really meant for us? Uh, are, we're, we're modern people and so far advanced, and, and the reality of it is, no, we're not. <laughs> Let's just… Let's just be honest about it. Okay. Why is Jesus Christ called the Word of God? The fullness of God's revelation is found in Jesus Christ, who not only fulfills the Scriptures, but is himself God's Word, the living expression of God's mind. The Scriptures testify about him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ." I love this quote from St. Jerome. It's, it's, a, it's an essential quote uh, to, really, to really take in. But this is why Jerome spent uh, much of his life translating uh, the Scriptures into Latin, which they'd not been uh, well translated up to that point, um, was so that people could read Scripture um, and thereby know Christ. Um, this prologue to St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. Remember, and, and, the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Um, all things were made by Him. Um, so really, the Scriptures testify um, to the one through whom all things were made. Um, and, uh, and, and we speak also. Um, this, is, this is the New Testament witness. The New Testament witness does not speak of some guy who happened to be just so good that uh, God sort of said, hey, you know, this guy's so good, he's my son. I'm going to make him my son. No. What, what's said here? That the one through whom all things in creation were made, um, by which all creation holds together, takes on human flesh and is born of a woman. Um, that's that's what's going on in Scripture. Um, and that is the fulfillment of, of all the Scriptures. 
Um, so, you know, what is it the Old Testament looks forward to? You can answer. Go ahead. Christ, okay. A Savior, Messiah, God with us. What else? An everlasting son of David. I mean, it's, 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 it's flush with these things. Um, and so, so uh, uh, this is what we, what we hold forth. How should Holy Scripture be interpreted? Just as Holy Scripture was not given through private interpretation of things, so it must also be translated, read, preached, taught, and obeyed in its plain and canonical sense, respectful of the church's historic and consensual reading of it. Um, this is almost a word-for-word uh, carryover from what's called the Jerusalem Declaration, which was uh, written in 2008. Uh, it is uh, really, if you're looking for kind of a somewhat confessional statement of global Anglicanism today, especially the part of Anglicanism that Christ Church is a part of through the Anglican Church in North America, um, this is it. The Jerusalem Declaration lays out how Scripture is to be interpreted and read. Now, let me go through this a little bit. Um, Peter writes that uh, no, no matter of Scripture is a matter of private interpretation. Um, that essentially means that um, when we read Scripture, we're actually accountable to the whole church, and not just the whole church that happens to be walking around with a heartbeat today, but the whole church, meaning going backward, uh, going back through history. We're accountable to them as well. And uh, this gives you a sense that there's a responsibility that we bear in reading Scripture as part of a living body. Um, man, I wish more people would get that, <laughs> would get that, would get that word today, that, that we really are, you know, we're not coming to these texts fresh. Um, we always come to this with a sense that we've received something from others, right, um, and that we're accountable to them as well. Um, scripture must be, therefore, translated. There's an old saying that the translator is a traitor. Um, have you ever heard this? Anyone? Okay, yeah. Anyone, anyone with, a, with, with a history in, in literature will know this. The translator always betrays their bias uh, through a translation. Um, and, you know, translations can actually be measured as to whether they're, whether they're really good or really not great based on, that, on how that bias shows through. And it very often does. Tr- scripture has to be translated um, in, in the most plain but also canonical sense. Um, scripture must be read. Um, with an eye to this, to this, to to the most plain reading, uh, but also to its. And by the way, when we read canonical, um, our our mind should go to the should go to this. If you take two or three verses of scripture and just sort of say, "But look what these two or three verses say," and you exalt that over everything else, what happens? Yeah, it's without context, right? Um, and you can make it say whatever you want. This is a normal thing today. I mean, this is the stuff of memes on, on Facebook and Twitter. It's like, yeah, but Jesus said this, and that means blah, 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 blah. And it's like you're reading everything outside of a, of a canonical sense. Um, Christians don't read Scripture that way. How do we read Scripture? As, as part of a whole, always within the whole. Um, so taking verses out of context or making, uh, making one verse speak for the whole, right, as if, as if that's uh, something that should be done. Um, uh, um, beware of the bias there of saying, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got my idea and I'm going to call Scripture to support of that, even if it might support what you think, right? Uh, be, be very careful with that. Scripture has to be read within the context of the whole. And that's what this uh, canonical sense is meaning to get to. Um, scripture has to be read that way. It also has to be preached that way. Um, and this is a great challenge. I mean, I think one of the great problems with uh, the way Scripture is preached today uh, in sort of exegetical line-by-line sermons, which can be really good, by the way. I mean, they can be really wonderful. But they tend to uh, walk away from the whole of Scripture and not be relating Scripture to the whole. Um, those particular texts which are under, under consideration. Scripture has to be taught in this uh, plain and canonical sense, um, uh, meaning that when we think about a text, we have to think about it in the context of the whole. Um, very, very, very important um, in teaching. 
And also, Scripture has to be obeyed, right? I think one of the, one of the great benefits of what the Jerusalem Declaration is laying out is to say that um, Scripture, in order to have the power that it does have in our lives, we have to, we have to obey it, right? We have to stick ourselves under its authority. Um, and that's exceedingly difficult to do, right? Because here's part of the problem. How well do you understand Scripture? If you say very well, I'm going to call you on that. Because <laughs> the reality of it is that the more I understand, the more I think I understand less. Um, the more I know I understand less. Um, so, so obedience to Scripture is, is of the essence. Now, I want to give a bit of uh, sense to this last phrase here, respectful of the church's historical, historic and consensual reading of it. Um, the church has a historic reading of Scripture, um, and, uh, and it's, it's um, you know, there are, there are divergent readings of Scripture throughout history, right? Can you agree with that? Right? There are things about which theologians have, have, uh, have argued bitterly about. Does Scripture mean this or that? There are things about which people have had major uh, questions about. However, at the same time as there's that, there's also a great deal of commonality and cohesion about very basic matters. Um, and, and this essentially means that um, if we want to read Scripture as part of the living body of the church, we have to pay attention to that, um, deep attention to that, um, and be careful of the ways in which our pride can, uh, can get in the way and cause us to say, but what if it doesn't mean that? <laughs> um, what if today we've become so advanced in our modern ability to think straight about these things that we really now understand it so much better 2,000 years later? Um, let me just say this. This is what C.S. Lewis calls uh, kind of, um, gosh, somebody's going to have to help me out. Chronological snobbery, yes, <laughs> um, where just because we happen to live, you know, so many centuries later, we sort of turn up our noses and look at others and say, what a bunch of uh, loons they were thinking all that uh, backward stuff. Um, listen, read the ancient sources. We understand a lot less, if anything, than uh, ancient people did, um, and, uh, and so it behooves us to listen to them. Um, there's something also about this word consensual that's necessary to understand, um, which is this. Um, in reading Scripture, and to read it well, you have, to, you have to sort of sit there and say, I'm going to submit my mind to others. I'm going to live under authority so that I can understand. Um, well, think about why. Do you have time to get a PhD in New Testament? Some of you do, and you're like, I am, I am. <laughs> I'm working so hard on it. But here's the problem. Even if, you're, even if you're getting a PhD in New Testament, you're going to write your dissertation on what? A chapter? Seriously. I have friends who studied under N.T. Wright. They're studying the best possible uh, uh, New Testament programs possible, and they say, I did my entire dissertation on one chapter, on one question. I understand that, and that's it. And I barely understand that. <laughs> so so this, is a, this is an ongoing issue. Um, no, we consent to the mind of the whole. We consent to uh, these consensual readings. And this is a great guard. I mean, it's a guard against, first of all, it's a guard against spiritual pride. Would you not agree with that? I mean, part of the problem with the way people are reading Scripture today is they say, because they've so imbibed this kind of Western individual spirit where I can discover whatever I want and I'm fully empowered, you know, I, I can determine truth from Scripture by myself. Um, there's this promise made and, you know, we've sort of unwittingly put ourselves in that position. But they think, oh, I can get it, I can understand it. And what we really should say is, Good luck with that, right? Um, uh, part, of, part of reading Scripture well is to say, I don't understand it. Um, I won't easily understand it. I need it. Uh, I, need to, um, I need to take my time. I need to live under submission. I need to live under authority and read it in that way. 
Um, and and what, what this Jerusalem Declaration is saying to the church as a whole is um, that, that there's something um, There's something which is um, there's something which breaks down when we don't read in this historic way. We don't read in this consensual way um, because we think we've come up with a novel interpretation of Scripture today. We've come up we're the first ones to think this, and of course, many people they'll they'll try it. They're like, we finally got it right. Um, don't be so sure. <laughs> I remember a, I remember a conversation several years ago with Hans Borsma, um, in which somebody from Christchurch said, well, you know, isn't there something really good about the way modern people see, see the world, like human life and the body, and, and you know, that we, that, we, that, we, that we think much more highly of the human body than this? And, and Hans was lovely, as always, and he said, I'm not so sure that's true. <laughs> and then he proceeded with an epic smackdown of that entire thought, which was to say that, you know, ancient people thought more highly of the body than we do, and he was right. Uh, but you see, there's this bias, this constant bias that we've arrived today. We understand so much better today. Um, and it's to freely be admitted that we do understand certain things better today, right? I mean, can we, can we say that just for a moment, that, like, there are certain perspectives that we have as modern people that are really good and really right? Um, but... Well, I'll give you an example. We, we remember the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing recently. I mean, can you just imagine what that does to your view of things in the universe? It's, it's crazy, right? To have pictures of the earth from outer space, from the moon, is crazy, right? But that doesn't invalidate ancient people's view of the world, does it? doesn't at all. Um, they see the world in a particular light, and they understand God in that light, and it's an important witness that we need to, that we need to take on as well. Um, there's an all too often a ready way to say, whatever's ancient, it must be backwards. Let's move on and move past it. Um, Got to be, be aware of that. Go ahead. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Right. No, 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 no. Yeah. Let's. That's. And and that's why the declaration says first it has to be uh, translated, read, preached, taught, and obeyed in its plain and canonical sense first, right? So the plain sense matters, right? Um, the, at, the, at the heart of it is the truth that you can read Scripture and understand it. Um, but we need to be careful, right? And I think there are some boundaries about how we can do that. Um, but yes, of course, right? Otherwise, we just sort of say, well, let's put, let's put the Bible in a case up there and, and bring it out occasionally, right? And not let anyone do it. Um, now, I will say, I will say that there are certain texts which uh, many through the centuries have said, hey, be really careful because… because the, the meaning isn't immediately plain, right? Or uh, the plain meaning or the, or the literal meaning um, can often overshadow other, other uh, very important meanings, so we'll, we'll, but we can deal with that at another time. Um, all this is to say is we have to be really careful, and I think this is something that, um, that has not happened so much today where, where there are people who say, 
we can understand, and not only that, but we can, we can weave these very coherent opinions having spent 30 minutes with a text. Um, I guarantee you there are people who have come before you and dealt with these things in much more detail and have, and have really sought to understand. All right. How should belief in the God of the Bible affect your life? As I prayerfully learn Holy Scripture, I should expect the Holy Spirit to use it to teach, rebuke, correct, and train me in the righteousness that God desires. This nourishes my soul towards the service of God and my neighbor. Love this answer um, mainly because it, it, it speaks to how we should expect Scripture to deal with us, right? Um, we should learn from it. It should teach us. It should rebuke us. Um, there are times when I'm sitting there at morning prayer and hearing the words of Scripture, and I just feel like, oh my, I've got some stuff to deal with this week. <laughs> um, and it's out of the blue, but it hits hard. Um, where, where I find myself you know, needing to be reconciled with someone, where I find myself needing to, to uh, get my house in order, where I find myself uh, confronted with how um, how prideful I've been or, 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 or ways in which I've seen things wrongly or ways in which I haven't seen how powerful a certain text is. Um, this happens often. Um, we should expect that, that Scripture should correct us and train us. Um, uh, this all goes straight back to 2 Timothy 3.16. This, this, um, that, that Scripture is useful in training us. Um, not to jump to a crossfit analogy all too quickly, but, but because I don't do it, but just put your, put your mind at rest. Um, but, but, you know, as I understand it about crossfit, they give you these various training exercises, right, which are meant to do all kinds of things, right? Build your core strength, build your weightlifting ability, do all these things. Scripture is useful in these ways to train us in righteousness. Um, and that's, that is, uh, so the reading of Scripture, meditating on Scripture trains us. It, it, it it forms us um, in righteousness. Um, our, this nourishes my soul toward the service of God and my neighbor. Um, we need, in order to do anything right, in order to get anything right in this life, to, um, to be nourished. Um, and, uh, and we often think, oh, I can do it. I've got all the, I've got all the, the power and all the ability. It's like, no. Uh, uh, scripture is so useful in, in feeding us uh, for the service of God and our neighbor. All right. How should you use the Holy Scriptures in daily life? I should hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them so that by patience and strengthening through God's Word, I may embrace and cling to the hope of everlasting life given to me in Jesus Christ. I should read and pray Scripture daily that I may know God's truth and proclaim it clearly to the whole world. This, uh, this phrase, hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, comes straight out of the collects of Thomas Cranmer, the first uh, Reformation Archbishop of Canterbury, um, who is intent, we talked about this in Brazosfellas this past week, uh, intent upon a whole church reading Scripture daily. Um, this is, in fact, Cramer's great vision is that uh, the whole church would read Scripture daily. Um, but listen to what he says. These are the senses of how we take in Scripture. First, to hear. And we'll talk more about this later in the Catechism. But it's very important to hear Scripture. Um, this is why I find it so gratifying that we have really good readers here on Sunday mornings. Uh, and particularly, sometimes they're really good, right? And they've spent a lot of time with the text before they read. And they're, and they're getting meaning across to you simply by reading it in a way that uh, just by running through it, we might not get. Um, hearing is important. Uh, the Reformers tell us that, uh, and they tell us this because it's, it's, it's almost a universal thought in the church, that, uh, that faith comes by hearing. It... Um, we, we hear the Word, and it, and it sort of um, reverberates around in, the, in our soul. Um, so we, we hear Scripture. And I think this is something where, in a, in a, in a culture and in a church, indeed, I, I was surprised with this. You know, having been an Anglican my whole life, I'm kind of uh, uh, blissfully unaware of other churches and what they do or don't do. Um, and someone once told me, it's like, there's just so much Scripture at Christ Church on a Sunday morning. It's amazing. And I said, well, what was your church like before? Oh, we never read Scripture in church. <laughs> like, you might get a verse put up on a screen, you know, but that'd be it. No readings. Um, and I thought, oh, that's, that's terrible. 
we've got to hear Scripture. We also need to read it, right? We need to be regularly reading Scripture. Uh, Mark. Mark does not mean go through with your, high, with your four different highlighters and highlight Scripture. Um, it means instead to, to obey Scripture. Um, now, you might mark it up, um, but, but, uh, but it's more important to mark, to, to obey. Uh, to learn. What does learn mean here? It means, first thing, what we think when we think learn is like, oh, you know, I've got to become a student of Scripture and, and learn all the various uh, portions of Scripture. Learn also means memorize. Um, it's very important to start memorizing Scripture if you haven't. Uh, there are some great aids for this. When I was in college, I fell in with the navigators who taught me to memorize Scripture, and uh, they were very good at it. Uh, you can still go there and to their website and buy packs of uh, memory cards. And I've known people through the years who keep these in their pocket, and they'll just kind of go through them on occasion. And they'll memorize 50 verses of Scripture within two or three weeks. Um, but uh, also important to, to work on hearing Scripture so often that it just sort of seeps in. Uh, this past week we were reading uh, from Ephesians, and I realized, like, oh my goodness, I've memorized this entire book um, just because I've heard it so many times, and I've read it so many times that, that I know it. Um, amazing thing. We should, we should learn Scripture. It's said of St. Augustine that he spoke Scripture, which I always love, right? He spoke it like a language. Um, we really need to work at getting, getting to that point. By inward digestion, what do we mean here? I love how, it's, how earthy this is, right? It's meditation, right? Um, scripture is not just to be memorized, but and not just to be read, not just heard, uh, but deeply digested. Um, such that what? I love how he says inwardly digested. It's so good. We live by its grace, by its power. Um, we begin to power our life by it, just like we inwardly digest food and live by food, right? But what is it? What is it that said in Scripture? Man shall not what. Live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. At the, at the center of Scripture is an understanding that human life is sustained by, by God's breath, um, by God's inspiration, um, just as human life is kicked into becoming a living being by, by the breath of God. Um, we, can, we live by, um, by Scripture. Um, and this helps us, right, to embrace and cling, hope, cling to the hope of everlasting life given to me in Jesus Christ. Um, reading Scripture daily, uh, as we'll say later in the Catechism, is a part of what we call the Anglican rule of life, of daily reading of Scripture in the daily office. Um, uh, I've, I found it absolutely gratifying that the daily office has caught on like a wildfire in this parish with so many people doing the daily office that I'm just regularly gratified by, by saying, hey, you know, did you, did you catch that in the reading this past? Oh, yeah, wasn't that wonderful? And we just have all these wonderful conversations because we're all reading in the same text at the same time. Uh, so if you have not ever done the daily office, you know, you should consider becoming a part of that. Um, if you have a family and, and, you, and, and you consider it, you know, one of the things you can do is read the daily office readings with your kids. It's just a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Um, we do this not only for our own understanding, but also for the life of the world. Um, uh, I think we all too often think about the kind of bread which Jesus gives as, uh, as the Eucharist and not so readily as the Word of God. Um, but we need to think more about the Word of God and what it means to be a people who, who feast upon the Word of God and therefore are empowered for service to the world. Um, meditation on Scripture is one of the ways in which the saints show us that um, meditation on Scripture leads us um, to great charity. Um, for many people throughout history, it's been meditating on Scripture that's led them uh, to live a life of sanctity and to live a life of service to their neighbor. Um, very important stuff. Okay. Look. Go ahead. That I would encourage? I encourage two translations. One is the RSV and the other is the ESV. Um, basically, those two are, are good and you can get through them. The RSV has one little thing in it that makes me crazy. Every time we read 1 Corinthians, it makes me insane, as it does a number of others. Uh, but the ESV gets that one right, and, uh, and therefore, I think you know, eventually it'll be what we use here, uh, but um, since ESV translations with the Apocrypha are hard to come by, or at least have been until recently, we've used the RSV. 
this leads to the last question, which I'll deal with now, so we can just finish this section today and, uh, and move on. What other books does the church acknowledge? The canon of Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. The 14 books of the Apocrypha may also be read for example of life and instruction of manners, but not to establish any doctrine. Okay, so here's how we deal with the Apocrypha, okay? Um, one of the things that was happening in the Reformation was that Roman Catholics were calling down the authority of the Apocrypha against their foes on several doctrinal points. And the response of Anglicanism was simply to say what's been said for a long, long time, which is that, um, wait, you're drawing doctrine from the Apocrypha? Hold up, right? Um, Anglicanism holds this very simply, which is, that, which is this, that the canonical books, the 39 books of the Old Testament um, and the books of the New Testament are the canon of Scripture, and they contain all things necessary to salvation. What that means is not that uh, I can sort of sit on my desert island and read the Bible and, and, uh, and figure it all out. What it means is that nothing can be required to be believed for salvation than that which is contained in Scripture. Okay? So, great example. There are lots of things which people can believe, lots of things which Christians can disagree about, right? Lots of things which you're free to believe as an Anglican, right? And very often people will come to me and say, wait, you believe that? Yes, I do. <laughs> but, but I can't ask you to believe it, and I can't even tell you to believe it, uh, because it's not in Scripture explicitly, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So what is required to be believed is only that which is in Scripture. Um, and the Apocrypha, we're just saying straight up, has none of that. <laughs> um, and, and that's really the simple way to put it. Um, having said that, we do say in the articles uh, that the Apocrypha is read. Um, so one of the things that uh, Anglican lectionaries have been very explicit about is that the Apocrypha is read, both in the daily office and also in the church's Sunday lectionaries. You'll note, however, and I got this wrong on last week's slides, um, the way you're supposed to end the reading from the Apocrypha is not the word of the Lord, but what? Here ends the reading, right? And Paul got that right last week, and I was very impressed. He was like, yeah, I got it right. Um, but it's simply to say that, that we, we don't hold that the Apocrypha is authoritative in the same way as, uh, as the canonical books of Scripture. However, having said that, every Bible I have in my library that I use, especially this one, uh, has the Apocrypha in it. Why? Because I pray the daily office, right? And the daily office has readings from the Apocrypha. And, and you know, good for that, right? Because... Um, they're exciting. They're fun to read. And, um, and uh, you get a good sense of what, especially through reading the Apocrypha, you get a good sense of what, um, what the climate was like in, uh, in the first and second century before Christ. Um, and it's, it's really good reading. Uh, so I want to encourage you to read, read the Apocrypha. Um, you know, the King James Bible was actually produced with a decree from the king saying that if, any, if anyone printed it without, a bi without the Apocrypha, they were to be beheaded. Um, and this was maintained for quite some time. Uh, it was only in the last 150 years or so that anybody printed Bibles without the Apocrypha. Um, and the reason was simple. It's that that was considered to be a part of the Bible. But in Anglicanism, not, not a part of the canonical scriptures. And that's, that's the distinction that's drawn. Um, now, granted, it's an uneasy distinction. Uh, we don't just say, oh, it's worthless, don't do it. But at the same time, we don't say, oh, we can draw doctrine out of it. Because truth be told, there's very little doctrinal content to begin with. Probably none, actually. So uh, there it is. We will pick up next week with Jesus Christ. Thank you. <laughs>